Well, as you obviously have noticed, I said that we're going to be going through the book of Esther today, and that's a bit of a different task than the Minor Prophets, is it not? Well, part of the reason for that is simply that as I'm coming on full-time and as we're looking ahead, um, Lord willing, in the beginning of the year, at some point, I'll be preaching more than just once a month. It might actually actually go to uh, once every other week. Uh, So with that, though, I'll still be going up to Milwaukee's campus, and so we were thinking through that and just wondering, okay, how would that work, right? You have once every four weeks up there, potentially, and then once every two weeks here. Uh, I could preach through the Minor Prophets and then just kind of leave them hanging, but we figured probably not best to do that. So one of the things we're looking at is that I might go through the Psalms instead. So what we're doing today is just kind of a one-off. We're going to get the 10,000-foot view of the book of Esther, and then Lord willing, uh, when I preach again for the next two, potentially three times, I'm just going to kind of wrap up the Minor Prophets. And what I plan on doing with that is just taking you through various texts in the Minor Prophets to show specifically uh, God's dealings with the nation of Israel and salvation in that sense. So with that today, though, again, we're going to be taking a look at the book of Esther. It's a very, very different book than what you've been hearing me preach through. Uh, It's a wonderful little book in the Old Testament. And if you're not familiar with it, it's actually caused no shortage of controversy in the broader church for many different reasons. Now, part of that is simply that the book itself doesn't once mention the name of God. Not once do you find the name of God come up in the book of Esther. Another reason, though, is that people tend to look at the characters within the book itself and think that we need to then make them role models or heroes of the faith, that we need to pattern our lives after them. Or some will say, not in the least bit, right? Uh, But as a result, either of those people, are they're missing the point of the text. They're just simply moralizing it to death, and they miss the whole point of this wonderful book. Now, suffice it to say, the book of Esther is actually not even about Esther or this man named Mordecai or any of the other characters that really show up in the book, even though they're all part of it. The book of Esther is revealing something wonderful about the person and nature of God himself. Now, in a nutshell, the book displays the providence of God. That is God's sovereign care over his people that he loves. Now, the book reveals this about God. And so if you are reading this with eyes to see, you can't actually read through the book and see all of these little details that seemingly fall into place one series after the next and, and just think, there's something far, far bigger at play there. It shows us there is no such thing as circumstance or chance or whatever else you might wish to call it. Rather, it shows us that the God of Israel or even our God is a God that's always at work behind the scenes of all things and even the most mundane details inevitably to accomplish his will, but specifically for the good of his people. In this particular case, we find that God is lining up this incredibly circumstantial details to save his people from genocide, right? One guy wants to wipe them off the map and God takes care of them. The story itself takes place, historically speaking, between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra, but it doesn't follow the Jews that go back to Jerusalem. Rather, it follows these people who have stayed in the land of their exile. So we know that particularly from this case, it's, it's automatically starting off with a sense in which they've disobeyed God, right? They haven't returned to the land. But these people are ones that are stuck in Persia during the reign of a king named Ahasuerus. Now, we know from secular history that this king is none other than King Xerxes. 
Now, if you know the name of King Xerxes, you may remember he's part of this famous battle that happens at Thermopylae with the Spartans. He's also led several unsuccessful military campaigns against Greece during this time. And so it's really rather neat bit of history that just shows us that a king like Xerxes, in a time like that, that his heart is still putty in the hands of the Lord that he still guides it like a stream of water and directs it wherever he pleases, which ultimately, again, is to accomplish his will for the good of his people. Now, let's start to make our way actually through the book of this, uh, Esther, and then we'll see this, again, at this high level. We're going to move very rapidly through it. Um, so follow along, but if you get lost at some point, that's okay. Just You'll pick back up. I'm going to give you several clues where we're chapters are at and, and what verses we're at as well. So now we find in verse 1 of chapter 1 that the book of Esther begins with this description of a man named Ahasuerus. He's the king, and he has this kingdom that's actually quite large overall. We can see that he reigns from India to Ethiopia, and he has oversight of 127 provinces. His royal throne is even situated in a region called Susa. Now, it tells us, continuing in the narrative, that In the third year of his reign, he actually sets up this massive banquet. Now, this banquet is to last all of six months, and he invites princes and nobles and military officers to attend. And the reason he does this is is actually twofold. Now, part of it is simply that he is going to be planning an attack on Greece coming up rather shortly. It's going to be unsuccessful, but nonetheless, he's here today to plan it. And so his list of attendees is all based on the people that are going to be helping develop strategy. But then notice in verse 4, again, during this same time, what does it say? He displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty throughout the whole thing. So a very large part of it is simply to celebrate how great of a king he is, how great Persia is under his reign. This is important because it gives you some clues into who this guy is, and it's going to come up obviously later as well. But He's a king, and he's not just a king. He's a king of this great superpower of his day. He's exceedingly rich. And so a very large part of this six-month extravaganza is just kind of pomp and circumstance to encourage the people, right? It's this pre-celebratory victory. But the real pomp and circumstance is what comes next, starting in verse 5. He opens up the fifth festive—excuse me, the festivities to all people, both great and small— for another banquet that's to last seven days. And this is where you really start to see his opulence and everything on full display. There's fine linens draped everywhere. There's couches made of gold and silver. And there's this mosaic pavement that the couches are on. And it's just inlaid with all these precious gems and stones. Now, these couches themselves were designed that you would eat and recline on them and drink your wine. And so, in a nutshell, it's just designed to help you be a hedonist, right? You're sitting there, somebody's draping grapes over your face, and you're just eating it luxuriously out of these golden goblets, and each one of these goblets is unique, and so there's no two alike there. Every bit of it is just this whole party to enjoy and, and show you how great the kingdom is, right? There's an abundance of wine. Everyone's encouraged to drink to their heart's content, and you can just imagine the sort of overindulgence that happens as this seven-day extravaganza continues, Well, then notice in verse 9, you have 
another character we're introduced to named Queen Vashti. She's also holding a banquet for all the women in the palace of her husband. And so there's this kind of split that's set up, right? There's, there's a separation between the men and the women. The men are having their seven-day party. The women are having their seven-day party. And you can imagine as the men are drinking more and more and more each day, they start to get a bit more rowdy each day, do they not? Well, perhaps after this six-month thing, and then after this seven-day party where there's just so much feasting and drinking, they might start to get a little tired of their male companionship. You know, perhaps they desire the company of a woman. Now, on that seventh day of the banquet, what happens is that the drunken king commands his queen to come and display her beauty before the crowd, right? That's starting in verse 10. But the text tells us that she refuses him. Now, this is where things start to get a bit more interesting. It kicks off this whole series of events that inevitably lead to the story we have today in our Bibles. Right away, we start to see that this forms an an, an unraveling of events that many might call happy circumstance. But the reality is that we know there is no such thing as chance in God's world. Here, we even start to see that providence, that is the, the providential care of God is on full display. Now, there's a tremendous amount of conjecture on what the king desired his queen to do. Right? Some would say it's a salacious display of her body for all the people there. But the reality is we just don't know the full details of it. What we do know from verse 11 is that he tells her he wants her to display her beauty before the crowd, and she doesn't like this. And so what does she do? But she refuses. And it says the king is very angry with her. Now, I don't mean he's just unhappy with her. This guy is an irrationally angry man. Now, to give you a brief picture of what that looked like for him, I want to just give you a small glimpse into his character in one of the days of his reign. So uh, he's going to invade Greece, right? During this time, he orders people to build a bridge in between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. And there's this rather large storm that comes. Well, as a result, the storm knocks down the bridge. And so he orders an execution on all of his architects and his engineers. He says, chop off their heads. But then beyond that, what he does as he orders his troops to go into the water and to whip it several hundred times. And then beyond that, he says, go in and bind the water with chains and stab the waves with red-hot pokers, just for good measure. This is a guy that the queen angered, right? This is not a guy you want to make angry. And so with the help of his counselors here, he's then going to make an example of her. Now, the text also tells us he's afraid of this sort of feminist movement that might be rising up in the women of Persia because of what she did, right? We see that in 17 and 18. And so to solve this dilemma, here's what he does. He issues an edict. He says, the queen has not only wronged me, but every one of you, all of the land. He deposes her as queen through this official edict. And as you can see in verse 19, it says it can't be repealed. So once it's done, once it's in the books, that's it. And that's going to become important later but it can't be undone with her, right? She's no longer queen. And then part of this edict is that he's going to replace her with somebody worthier, whomever he thinks that might be. And we'll get into that in just a second as well. But then another part of it is he's going to quell this feminist uprising he thinks may happen. So notice in verses 21 and 22, he simply sends all these letters throughout the land in every language. And then part of it establishes that every man should be the master of his home. And so with the stroke of a pen, perhaps a hammer and chisel, if you will, 
Ahasuerus gets his revenge on his queen, right? But then he quells whatever uprising he thinks may happen as a result of her insubordination. Well, then we come to chapter 2. And this is where we see the providential hand of the Lord on even greater display. He's clearly directing all of these events for his purposes to preserve and to save his people, Israel. So what does it tell us? Well, after a period of time, and during this time, he unsuccessfully invades Greece. So he returns home, but during that time, he remembers his decree against his former queen, and then he holds a beauty contest of sorts. He's going to determine who is worthier than Vashti. And so the king appoints people in all 127 provinces, and he says, pick out the most beautiful young virgins from among you so they can be brought into the harem of the king. And then in verse 5, we get introduced to a guy named Mordecai. And the text gives us a very brief lineage of, of him. It gives us a very brief history of him. And then it's followed up by that with Esther, right? So in verse 7, we find this girl named Hadassah, which is Esther's Hebrew name, by the way. And we find out she's raised by Mordecai because both parents are dead. We also find out that she is beautiful of form and face, which is just another way of saying she is a very attractive young woman. What that means simply is that she's a prime target of a search like this for the king. So in verse 8, we start to see that Esther is gathered among the people to go before the king, and she undergoes this beautification process. Right? This is another long process. It's, it's a full year. But in the midst of this, we know she's already beautiful, right? But in the midst of this, there are qualities that go beyond her beauty that the text seems to give us. You know, she's a favorite of the king's eunuch who is in charge of gathering all of these different virgins into the harem. We don't really know anything about how that happens, but we do know that she's a favorite of him. You know, it's very similar to what happens in the book of Genesis when we find that Joseph is made a slave, right? He finds favor in Potiphar's home, and then he finds favor before the Pharaoh. Well, she finds favor with the eunuch, and so he provides her with all sorts of cosmetics and and food, and then seven servants from the king's palace, and then he puts her up in the best place in the harem. But it's still a harem, guys. Now, if you don't know what a harem is, to put it In the simplest of terms, it's a place where the king puts all of these beautiful women to have his pick of the litter, if you will, to have his way with them. In other words, it's a brothel. The king would choose whatever woman suited his needs at the time, whatever he desired for that day, and then after he had his way with them, he would return them back to the harem. Mordecai, he's Esther's uncle, right? He's concerned with what's going on, or he's concerned with her well-being, And so he's just regularly checking up on her during this time. And that all becomes important, but he's not naive. He knows what's going on here. But yet again, this even is one of those circumstances, if you will, that turns into the providence of God. Well, we'll get there in a moment, but I want you to see there's something just dark and broken happening here, isn't there? Right, this is the basis for how the king is going to choose his queen. This is how he determines her worthiness. And so after all of these virgins undergo this year-long beautification process, they're anointed with oils, cosmetics, and then one by one, they're just simply brought before the king, and he decides who he's going to take. Well, the only freedom many of these girls would ever see is when the mood struck the king. Right, so if he enjoyed his time, they might come out of the harem and come visit him, but then they'd just go right back. And if he didn't enjoy his time, they would live out their days there. Now just think of that for a moment. 
This is the situation that Esther is in, right? She's, she's not exactly in a situation where she has all that much of a choice in because this king could just simply kill her and everyone she loves in, in the blink of an eye if he desired to, right? All, you're standing before this king who literally has the power to take your life and to destroy all of your people, and there's no guarantee that he won't do that even if you do everything right. That's not saying any of this is right. It is profoundly wrong, but it is the situation she is in. I, I talked with Matt about this briefly, but how many times can we make judgments from the confines of our home where none of this is our reality, right? It's super easy from that point of view. But the bigger point of view here in the text is that even in the midst of this dark and broken time where she might even be willful, in all of it, that God's providence is still on display as he is guiding and working through all of these events to save his people from judgment, right? He's going to save his people from annihilation, even in the midst of an evil world. I think of so many times in my life, especially prior to knowing Christ at all, or ever even hearing the gospel, where as a result of my own sin and folly, or maybe the sin and folly of somebody else, that I was just thrust into a situation that I never, ever saw coming. I know some of you share that same experience, right? I look back, though, and I see in every minute detail of it that the God of this universe was providentially guiding all of those things to not only end up for my good eternally, right? He brought me from darkness to light to save me, but he has now even just provided a way for me to be the man that I am today. He has cared for me even in the midst of my own stupidity, and I've got a lot of stupidity, guys. But more than this, I believe much is the same with Esther here. She may have not seen it at the time. She may not even cared. She may have not had any clue to how all of this was going to work out, but the reality is that nonetheless, God was pleased to provide for Israel in the midst of all of that, in the midst of it, in spite of it, Again, there's similarities to the story of Joseph where we see that there's inklings of this plan for evil, and yet God intended it for good. This is the king. He's having his way with whomever he pleases, and yet God is simultaneously working these same exact events to save his people. Now we start to see how this all unfolds in verse 15. <clears throat> it becomes Esther's turn to visit the king, well, she goes into the king, and again, she finds favor with all those who see her. Uh, there's something more going on than Esther's simple charm and, and beauty here. And then in verses 17 and 18, what does it say? But that the king loved Esther more than all the others. He makes her queen, and then, of course, he gives another banquet because this king loves parties, right? Well, she's not made her Jewish heritage known at this time, and, and the reason for this is relatively simple. Mordecai has just told her, don't let it be known yet. Well, that becomes incredibly significant later when the timing is perfect for her to do so. But right now is not that time. You know, who knows how the king would have reacted? Who knows how the Persians would have reacted? They're not exactly friendly to the Jews during this time. But again, in all of it, there's something so much greater than the mere affection and pleasure of the king at work. What is the basic story so far? You have a girl from a conquered and despised people in the land of Persia that somehow manages to land herself in the most prestigious position you can find. Uh, you can't write a better story than that, can you? 
But God's providence doesn't stop here, right? His, his loving care for his people, his sovereign care for his people doesn't stop here. Something even more significant starts to happen in verse 21. Well, Mordecai, on one of his frequent visits to Esther, is sitting at the king's gate, and then he, he hears of a plot to kill the king, right? He's a, he's a good uncle. He's just checking up on her once again. But in the midst of this, just like every other time he does it, he overhears of these two guards who want to kill the king. Well, this is incredible, right? Something seemingly insignificant. He's just visiting Esther. He's just checking up on her. It's, but this is going to be one of those things that turns the tides in their favor, Once again, we even see that the Lord's providential care is built into this fact that he's just visiting Esther. Well, Mordecai, again, he's being a good uncle. He has no clue that today of all days is going to be something that puts him in just the right position at just the right time. And he certainly has no clue that this will all one day be a thing that leads to the salvation of Israel. So what does he do, though? He's faithful, right? He's a faithful man. He tells Esther, who then tells the king on his behalf, Uh, But again, there's no mention of their relation, no mention that she's a Hebrew. The plot is investigated, verse 23, it's confirmed, and then Mordecai's deeds are recorded in the Persian records. Now, both of these men, of course, are hanged for their plot of assassination, but nothing actually further happens then. Now, that's incredibly significant. The king would normally award such loyalty, right? Right? That's how you keep people in your good graces. That's how you keep them loyal, especially if there's an assassination plot and some guy comes and reveals that. It's like, hey, I'm going to reward that guy because I kind of want to live still. But there's oversight, right? And this is no small oversight. This is no insignificant thing because the king's life was on the line. But he doesn't reward him. No such thing happens here. Mordecai's life just simply goes on. Again, this event will be brought to light at just the right time. It will all be part of the Lord's providential care for his people. Well, we then come to chapter 3. And here we are introduced to a man named Haman. He's the king's right-hand man. In verse 1, we actually learn something incredibly significant about this man once again. And that's that he is an Agagite. Now, in verse 10, we see that come up yet again. So look down real quickly. You'll see that Haman is the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, or Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Now, the Agagites all trace their lineage back to a king named Agag, who is of the Amalekites. Now, earlier, we learned that Mordecai is a descendant of Kish. Kish is from the tribe of Benjamin, and Benjamin from the line of King Saul. So you guys are like, okay, what's... Why are you telling me this? What's significant about it? Well, if you know your Old Testament well, Saul was commanded by God to go and exterminate the Amalekites, right? There was a judgment upon them because they were a curse to Israel. And Saul's not a very good king, though, so he spares King Agag, he lets him live, and he disobeys God. Well, God's not too pleased with this, right? And so the prophet Samuel steps in, and like any good prophet, he just picks up a sword and hacks this guy to pieces, But here's the important part, right? Here's how this relates to our story today. Haman, the Agagite, and Mordecai, the Jew, or the Benjamite, both know their family history. They both know that this age-old feud between Israel and the Amalekites is still ongoing in some sense, right? God promised to exterminate the Amalekites. They're still thriving. 
So when Haman is parading around Persia, he's got this newfound authority as the king's right-hand man, and the people are all bowing down to him, and Mordecai just says, I'm not going to do that. Right? No way. He refuses to bow, and the reason for this in verse 4 that he gives, at least, is that he's a Jew. And this enraged Haman. Now, it enraged him so much so that he, he thinks this gives him the perfect opportunity to exact revenge for the Amalekites. Right Now, thinks Haman, this is the time, the time that's ripe for the Jews to be handed over. I'm going to put an end to this age-old feud once and for all. And so what does he do? Starting in verse 7, he plots a plan to exterminate the Jews. He issues an edict to be spread throughout the land. Now, he casts lots to determine when the best time would be to put the Jews to death. Now, unbeknownst to Haman, though, The lot may be cast, but no matter how it lands, it's every decision is from the Lord. Well, Haman casts a lot during the first month, and the lot falls on the 12th month. Now, that's actually some pretty good news for the Jewish people, but they have no clue, right? That's good news because that gives them a lot of time before Haman's going to initiate this extermination of the Jews. But the Jews don't see it that way. You know, God is at work to display his providence behind the scenes without them even knowing it. God is at work to display his judgment even on these people known as the Amalekites, and we're going to see that later. But right now, they don't see that. Well, Haman tells the king in verse 8, here's the content of what he says. There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's commands. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. In other words, they need to die. If it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the treasuries of the king. In other words, let me wipe them all out, and then I'm going to pay you an exorbitant amount of money for it. Well, the king gives him his signet ring, which is basically a blank check for Haman to write up whatever decree he sees fit. And in this case, it just gives him permission to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jews, both young and old, women and children, and to seize all of their possessions as plunder. Now, all of the Jews really does mean all of the Jews at this time. This means everybody that went back to Jerusalem to rebuild, these are going to be people that are killed, right? This is genocide. Well, the couriers go out, and all the land is very aware of the fact that they now have royal sanction to exterminate the Jews. Now, the Jews have some enemies, and they're very happy to hear this. At the same time, again, the Jews are distraught, which is what we start to see in chapter 4. I know many of you are probably looking at the time and wondering, is he going to hit all 10 chapters? Well, buckle up because we're going to keep going fast. Now, Mordecai learns of this plot to kill his people, and he's he's taken the mourning and sackcloth and ashes in the king's gate, right? That's chapter 4. Esther hears of this, and then there's this exchange that happens between the two of them. Mordecai informs Esther of the whole plot. He even includes a copy of the royal decree, and then he begs her. He just begs her, stand before the king and plead on behalf of the Jews. Plead on behalf of your people. But there's a problem with this, right? If anyone comes before the king without an invitation, the king has the absolute power and the absolute right to just kill them on the spot. And and believe me, no one would bat an eye at this if he did so. 
right? If he has mercy, though, he's going to extend his golden scepter, and that gives you the freedom to speak. But if he doesn't, you're dead. I mean, it's really that simple, and as good Americans, we just don't get that, do we? Well, Esther tells this to her uncle, and his response is phenomenal. Verse 14, he basically tells her, hey, this little secret of your Jewish heritage is going to be found out, and you're not going to escape any more than any other Jew. If you remain silent, this is, again, here's, here's what's phenomenal, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from somewhere else, and you and your father's house will perish. Right, think about that. You're dead if you do, and you're dead if you don't. But the Jews will be delivered either way. What a phenomenal statement of faith in the providence of God. Well, then he goes on, but perhaps, perhaps you have attained to royalty for such a time as this. Perhaps God has providentially made you queen, Esther, so that at just the right time, you may save our people. Perhaps God has been sovereign in every detail of this. Perhaps he has placed you here for this exact reason. Well, on hearing this, Esther resigns herself to go before the king, and then she asks Mordecai to have all of the Jews in Susa fast on her behalf. She asks that they humble themselves. They go before God because that's what you do when you fast. And then she says, and if I die, I die. Incredible. Just incredible. Well, Esther then goes before the king in chapter 5, and she has no clue if she's going to be spared. She has no clue if she's going to die. Remember, this king is known for his irrational anger. He's not exactly the guy you just want to pop in on and surprise. He has, she hasn't even seen him in a, in a month. But Esther must take her chances. So she comes before him. She lays herself at his mercy. Remember, again, she hasn't seen him in over a month. There's no, truly, or there's no telling what he truly might do. Uh, but King Ahasuerus has mercy. And she finds favor in his sight once again. Well, and he asks her then in verse 3, basically, what's troubling you, my queen? Well, evidently, he can tell just by looking at her that something's not quite right. But he loves her. He reassures her. He says, even up to half of my kingdom would be given to you at my request. Basically, there's, there's not much I'm going to tell you no on. So she asks for something relatively simple. She requests that he and Haman just simply attend a banquet. Well, that's, that's a pretty minor ask, right? So, of course, he obliges this request, and then the banquet happens. And again, at this banquet, he can tell this isn't what she truly wanted. So he reassures her again. What is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Even half of my kingdom, it shall be done. On the human side of things, for some reason, Esther doesn't think now's the time. We don't know why. Maybe she was nervous. Maybe she was worried the king would reject her. We don't know. But she, it's not the right time, and so she pleads for another banquet. And then she says, at this banquet, she'll reveal what's on her heart. So she still leaves the king in the dark and goes on her merry little way, and then the focus turns on to Haman as he's returning home. And I just love this section, because this guy is feeling pretty darn good about himself right now. Not just one banquet with the two most important people in the kingdom, but two. Right, everything's going right. He's finally made it. He's getting the recognition he deserves. He's the king's right-hand man, but now it seems like he's going to become the queen's left-hand man. Right? He's in the good graces of everyone. 
There's no telling what pleasures await him. And then as he daydreams about all these good fortunes, he bumps into the one guy he doesn't want to see, that foolish Jew, Mordecai. And Mordecai just refuses to bow down. And so he becomes enraged yet again. But he controls himself. Not yet, he thinks. Soon enough, I'll have my revenge. Well, then he returns home and he boasts of all the ways that the gods have smiled on him. He tells his wife and friends, and, and yet in the midst of all that, he just says, you know what, because of this foolish Mordecai, it's not enough. I will not be satisfied until I can kill him. Well, she's a good wife, right? She's, they're good friends, and so what do they do? They're like, hey, why don't you just build this exceedingly tall gallows, and then you can hang this guy from it, and bam, there you go. You can go to the banquet after that, and you'll be in great spirits. And he thinks, hey, this is actually not a bad idea. So he does so. He immediately orders the gallows to be built that same night, and he probably slept pretty darn soundly. Right? He's thinking, my enemy's going to die. I'm in the graces of the king and queen. Life is good. Well, unbeknownst to Haman, at the same time, there's this other seemingly ordinary night. The king can't sleep. Hasuerus is awake in his bed. That's what we see now in chapter 6. Now, we've all had those restless nights, right? You toss and turn, and, and evidently, this isn't an uncommon thing for the king either, and so he does what every ordinary human being would do. He asks his attendants to bring in a book of the royal records to be read to him, and this is what I find kind of funny, because he's like, you know what I need? I just need a good, dull book that I can just pass right out. <laughs> and I've done that. I mean, it's great. It works. But of all the records that could be picked, guys, of all the records that could be picked, they pick one out of the many that records of a man named Mordecai. It records of a man named Mordecai who reveals this assassination plot. Now, if you have eyes to see, you know right away this is no ordinary thing, is it? The servants, they're just grabbing a book. The king just wants to sleep. But God, once again, he's faithfully working through his providential care. He orchestrates that the very book they pick, the very book to be read the night before Mordecai is to be hanged, is the book that reveals his faithfulness. That's incredible. The timing of this can't be any more perfect. right? Mordecai is about to die. The gallows are being built. And yet the king hears of this man's faithfulness. And what does he discover? But nobody ever rewarded him. Well, here's where it all gets laughably coincidental if you believe in that sort of thing. But again, there's no coincidence in God's world. So in a twist of irony, Haman just happens to be on the scene and he gets called into the king's quarters. The king calls in his right-hand man and he asks him a question because he trusts his counsel. So he asks Haman, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? Well, Haman, of course, he's just beaming right now. He's beside himself. He thinks, hey, the king wants to reward me. Who else in all the kingdom deserves a reward more than me? Right? So he asks for the best of the best. He says, dress him with royal robe that the king has worn and seat him on the royal horse that the king has ridden. You can see where this is going, right? And let him even wear the king's crown while the prince or a prince escorts him through the city so all can see. He basically says, let him just be the king his day. Right? Haman thinks it's for him. And the king finds this to be great counsel. And then in a shocking turn of events, he looks at Haman and says, hey, 
Go do all that you have said for Mordecai the Jew. Right? You could just imagine how this would have shocked this guy. He's, here he's plotting to kill Mordecai. He wants to put him on this exceedingly high gallows to just kill him in front of everybody. But now he has to parade him through the city through the day. It's the complete opposite of everything he wanted. And yet it's the king's command, so you obey or you die. Right? So he does it. Well, then we continue to see how the narrative unfolds. Uh, after this, Haman returns home. He's mourning all of his misfortunes to his wife and friends. And here's the interesting thing that happens here, right? You see this in in 13. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, and he is, right? You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Right? If, you, if this is the guy that you wish to kill and he's a Jew, you're done. Well, notice then what happens next. It's in the midst of this conversation, verse 14, that the king's eunuchs come and they hastily bring Haman to the quarters of the king or the banquet that Esther had prepared. He's had no time to process everything that's just happened so far. He's basically just being carried along from one event to the next. And he goes to this banquet where he's summoned and he must go. And then we move into chapter 7 where we start to see everything unfold. Now the time is ripe. Now is the time that God has providentially planned this to be the moment where the fortunes of the Jews are reversed. Now is the time Esther is going to finally reveal to the king what's been bothering her. Well, Mordecai, the Jew, has been recognized before everyone. And now the final piece of the providential puzzle must slip into play to reveal the plot of this wicked man, Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Well, once again, the king and Haman are at the banquet, and once again, the king turns turns affectionately to his queen. My dear, you can make your request. Well, this time, Esther does not hesitate. She replies in verse 3, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition, and my people as my request, for we have been sold. I and my people to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. Now the king, no doubt, bewildered by the fact that some treasonous man has presumed to kill his beloved queen, asks who the man is. Haman shifts uncomfortably in the seat a little bit. Don't let her be a Jew. Oh, do not let her be a Jew. And then Esther breaks the forbidden silence and she says, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Now, Haman is absolutely terrified, right? In a split second, he goes from the highest of heights to the lowest of lows. He's going for the graces of the king to the fury of the king. And this king is not a king to be trifled with. But the king needs to clear his head, right? He just needs to think. And so he leaves their presence to cool off for a bit. And then Haman does what he thinks is the only thing he can do. He knows that the king is going to kill him. He knows this guy is an irrational man. But he knows the king loves his wife, doesn't he? And so he begs for his life. Well, what happens? But in the irony of all ironies, the blundering and blubbering Haman, who's just falling prostrate before the queen, begging for his life, 
falls on Esther as she reclines on the couch. And this is the exact moment the king comes in and thinks the worst possible thought imaginable. Right? I mean, this is fantastic. (laughs) He says, will this wicked Haman even assault the queen in my own presence, in my own house? Who dares to do that thing, right? Well, he orders his servants to then cover Haman's face in shame. And the eunuch says, hey, you know, there's this nice new gallows Haman had built last night to hang Mordecai on. You know, that same Jew who spoke up and spared your life, that same Jew you rewarded just yesterday, why don't you just go use that? Well, the king, of course, says, hang him on it. And so Haman's pitiful life comes to a close and the king's anger subsides, right? He was very angry. He's like, I just got to kill the guy. But this is not the end of the story, nor even the climax of it here. The Jews are still in danger, right? Haman's been done with, but the Jews are still in danger. And so then we turn to the final three chapters really to see just how God provided all the while through all of these events to provide for them on their day of their need, to deliver them and save them. Now we're going to move very swiftly through this section because all it is doing is recounting how God saved his people from their destruction. So chapter eight, we see these things, the reversal of Israel's fate all happened in rapid succession, right? Esther finally reveals that Mordecai raised her as a child. And so the king places Mordecai in Haman's place. He elevates him. He gives him his signet ring, which then gives him the right to make official decrees under the name of the king, right? It's this blank check, essentially. Esther reveals the plot of Haman in full, right? The Jews were set to be annihilated, and then she requests that Mordecai can then write a letter, right? He's got the ability to do so now. She asks that he can write this letter to reverse what Haman has done. Now, if you remember from the beginning, when Vashti was deposed, right, she couldn't undo any of that. That's set in stone. That's in the books. That's Persian law. You can't just annul it, but you can make a new decree. And so that's what they do. He orders them to write a decree to all the Jews in his name and to seal it, right? Make it official. The scribes are called in on the third month. So all this has happened relatively quickly, right? They were set to be exterminated in the 12th month. So they still have plenty of time here. And the gist of the letter is this. The Jews have the right to defend themselves from the oncoming onslaught. Every Jew, man, woman, child, could kill any enemy, man, woman, and child, who rose up on that day to kill them, and they could likewise take the plunder for their spoil. Will the king send out his royal steeds to get this message out as fast as possible to all 127 provinces? And then we see Mordecai is draped in in royal robes in a large crowd, and all the Jews see this and they rejoice. Right? Things are starting to look up a little bit. The letter reaches every province where the original decree is given, and then all the Jews rejoice again because for the first time in a long time, they actually have something to be joyful over. They actually have some hope. And the neat thing is that many people in the land actually became Jews as a result, meaning they converted. Now, the reason they do this is because the fear of the Jews fell on them. Right, So they know that the king has just issued this decree that they have the right to kill them. They know Esther is now the queen, and so they're saying basically in their minds, like, I don't want to be on their bad side, but they become Jews. And we're going to see how the rest of this all plays out then in chapter 9, verse 1. Right, So we'll continue from there. We see that the, the narrative just says it's the 12th month. 
that is, the month of Adar, and on the 13th day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. Now, again, I'm going to summarize this rather, rather quickly because, again, it just tells us that rather than the Jews being exterminated, they were the ones who were victorious. Now, they destroy 500 men, then an additional 75,000 men in re- remaining regions. Now, what's interesting here is that we find that there's these princes and satraps and governors and any who were servants of the king, right? So anybody that was working for the king, they helped the Jews because the dread of Mordecai fell on them, right? That's important because Mordecai is now the king's right-hand man, so he can officially uh, do these things under the decree of the king, and yet they have a dread of him. They have a fear of him. They recognize they need to just simply help the Jews out. Esther then asks for a second day to destroy their, their enemies in Susa, and then here hang the ten, ten sons of Haman, and the king grants it. Well, here's once again where we see the providence of God at play, this time particularly in a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, if you recall from earlier, I mentioned that Haman was an Agagite, right? He's from the Amalekites, right? The, the Lord promised to wipe the Amalekites off the map because they were a curse to his people, and undoubtedly, Haman and his family were still a curse to the Jews this day, so they're hanged. Now, it's a passing detail in the text in one sense, but it is nonetheless a reminder of the fact that not one single promise of God is left unfulfilled. He is faithfully working all things through his providential care. Isn't that beautiful? Now think of that. Isn't that just beautiful? Think of all the small details in your life where it's just the heartache and the agony and everything else that comes with it. And yet God is working all things through his providence for our good, ultimately for our salvation. Well, then Mordecai and Esther institute the days of Purim to celebrate the Jews' victory. And Mordecai records these events in the history books of the Persians. The people of Israel memorialize these two days with much feasting and gift-giving and especially giving gifts to the poor, right? Because they're just they're thankful, they're happy, they just want to celebrate. And the thing I love about it is that it's called the Day of Lots. That's what it roughly translates into because it's derived from the Hebrew word poor and That's what Purim means. It's the day of lots. It's recognizing that day when Haman cast lots to determine the day to destroy the Jews. And yet there's this delightful bit of irony present, isn't there? It reminds us that though men may cast the lot, the determination is from the Lord. Right? He works towards his counsel, towards his will. Haman cast the lot to eradicate the Jews, but then the Lord determined that the fortunes of the Jews would be turned to the contrary. Well, and then what happens in the end here? We turn to chapter 10, very short, just three verses, and it gives us some details about how King Ahasuerus lays a tribute or a tax on the land, and then it draws attention once again to the greatness of Mordecai for seeking the welfare of the Jews and the welfare of his people. Now, that's the story of Esther. 
In a nutshell, we, we find a story that is seemingly inconsequential and random events that ultimately turn out to be not so random after all, right? It's a wonderful story of God's sovereignty, but especially of his providence. That is God's sovereign providing care for his people. It's a protective care of God. You have a people who were exiled, right? They didn't return to the land as they were commanded. They stayed behind. And what comes of this is a story of a Jewish orphan that God made queen. Of her uncle who is elevated to the right hand of the king. And then this incredible series of events that takes place that no mere human being could ever orchestrate in their wildest imagination. All the while, though, in this book, there's no word from the prophets. God is not even mentioned. There's no extraordinary miracle, right? You don't see the seas parted or things toppling down from the mountains, walls tumbling down in Persia. But you would have to be blind to think it's all some happy, circumstantial, unforeseen luck. And that's the intent of this little book here in our Old Testament. That's the beauty of this book. The beautiful reality the book of Esther teaches us about is that God providentially cares for his people. He works all things, all things, all moments in time and space for his will and for his pleasure, but also for the good of his people. So when God is seemingly silent, beloved, when he is seemingly absent, When the days are dark, you go undergo the the dark night of the soul, as the Puritans might put it. God is ever-present. He is ever-present. He is always working behind the scenes of even the most ordinary moments of our lives, but all to fulfill his promises. Think of this again in light of your own life for just a minute. Some of you, like me, had so many dark and and depressing days before you even know or knew who Christ was, before you knew of the gospel. You were, like me, again, the epitome of what it meant to walk in darkness. And yet all the while, God was at work in the midst of those days to put you on a path that inevitably led to understanding the gospel, where he just simply plucked you from darkness and put you into the light. Not one of those moments was inconsequential or random. God brought you through that path for his good pleasure, but ultimately for your good in Christ. And some of you, like me again, have had many dark days after coming to Christ, right? After coming to Christ. Perhaps you made foolish and sinful decisions. I know that I have. Perhaps you've made decisions that have just simply held destructive consequences even to this day that you just suffer the result of. But beloved, God is not absent in those days. All the while, he's been orchestrating all of the events of your life and preserving you and working in spite of you for his glorious gospel and for his glorious grace and for the fame of his name. He's been working in spite of you and I in the midst of our own folly to accomplish his goodwill and pleasure. And if you are in Christ, that holds all of the promises for your welfare and ultimately your glorification in Christ. When all these things are just put to rest, finally. And then I know many of you are even looking at just the dark days we live in. 
right? You're watching people make all sorts of foolish decisions from our government and even our, in our nation, people of influence and power. And you wonder, is God even active? Is he silent? Beloved, even still, God is at work in the midst of the darkness. He is providentially caring for his church. He is working all things so that at just the right time, Christ will return and set all things right. He will bring us into the fullness of life everlasting. There will be no more dark days, no more pain, no more sorrow, not even a single tear shed. And that he will preserve us through his providence to the end. You also know that there is no question that God has placed us in the world for such a time as this, because this world is swiftly fading away. We have been placed into the world to bring the gospel to the nations, to the peoples, so that they too may be brought from darkness to light. We know that God is hurtling all things towards this inevitable end where the world will be judged. He will judge the living and the dead, and many will go to eternal life, but many, and I do mean many to eternal death. And this is where I turn my attention then to you if you are not in Christ today, because this is the reality that awaits you. You've come here today under the providential hand of God. It is not by accident that you come here to sing these songs and to hear this message and to be with this people. None of that is by accident. Your life is not a series of random inconsequential events. It's not by chance God placed you here to hear of hell. But it is also not by chance God has placed you here to hear of salvation in Christ. Every moment of your life, the joy, the sorrow, the good, the bad, the life, the death, every bit of it has been stamped on your heart so that you might simply contemplate what is next. That you might contemplate the significance of your life and death. Every moment has led you to this day Yet again, you are being faced with the reality of judgment. What might come next after you die? We do not know the time or the place, right? But everybody knows the death rate is 100%. Every one of us must die. No one will escape it. But the uh, promise of the Bible is that after death comes judgment. Well, the question I simply ask you is in light of this truth, in light of the fact that God is working all things towards this end, is are you safe? Are you safe in Christ? Are you forgiven? Have you found favor in the sight of the king of kings? Or like Haman, will your life swiftly crash and burn by your own design? The most important thing you could ever hear in your life is what I am to say now. The only way you can find favor in the sight of the Lord is if you believe and testify. And you guys hear this all the time. Right? Many, many of us hear this when we, we give baptisms, when we hear people's confession of faith. If you believe and testify that Jesus is the Son of God, that he took on human flesh and lived a perfect life of obedience to his Father's holy will, that he died on the cross in your place, paying the full penalty of your sins, that he rose on the third day, securing your life in him, if that's your confession and your hope, you're safe. And every single thing that God will do in this life will bring you to glory where that will be the most beautiful utterance of your praise forevermore. Let's pray.
Father, we, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this book of the Old Testament that is often misunderstood in so many ways, but that it reveals such a beautiful facet of your character that you are the God who provides. That our life is not our own, that it is not random, that all the events that happen to us are not without your keen eye upon them, but beyond simply that, but you have directed all of these things that they might be to the praise of your glory. I pray that we would not forget that this week, that even the seemingly mundane and inconsequential is not mundane or inconsequential, but it is all a part of your glorious plan to preserve us, to carry us to the end. And so I pray that as we have this in mind, that you would spur us on to obedience of the faith, you would spur us on to faithfulness to give the gospel, and that you would preserve us in these things, that we might reach the finish line and, and be able to say with great thanks that you are the God of our salvation from beginning to end. I pray that as these people go home today, that you would have your blessing upon them, that you would allow them to get home safely, and that they would enjoy this Lord's Day. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.